Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Uh, again, welcome to Crosspoint Church. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and I am uniquely excited about the text that we are going to pour into this morning, partially because if you've been tracking, I'm sorry, Truman, it's going to be a morning of walking. I can feel it. Truman's our camera guy today, and he said, Will, I'll give you 20 bucks if you'll just stand still. We... We're a church that believes in trusting in God's strength. That's one of the things that we'll be doing. So in true fashion, in trusting God's strength, Truman is blind, and he's the guy who runs our camera this morning. So I'm going to be moving, Truman. I can feel it. I apologize. We've been going through the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, one thing that you've realized if you've been walking through it with us for a time is that we've been busted up by some very difficult waves of Scripture. The, the path of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we've been dealing with difficult, awkward things. And I am uniquely privileged because I believe these chapters, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 and 33, page 21 in the Pew Bible. This is a time where our heads pop above the waves for a moment and we can just breathe in and see the horizon, steady ourselves and see the providential grace of God. And a second reason is, I think this is, it's definitely up to this point in Genesis, but I think in the entire book of Genesis, this is the only time where God's word gives a 24-hour time period so much literary view. We have two chapters looking at 24 hours. And so in this, it, Scripture highlights things in a couple of different ways. Uh, it, it repeats them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord bringing to fact that that's a big deal, the holiness of God. But then also it spends time on things. It, it slows itself down. And, and we see this here as Scripture kind of looks at time and stretches itself out for this 24-hour period of time. And therefore, in this is packed just an incredible potency of God's grace. I was, um, I think this was, I think it was yesterday, Karen Ann asked me if I would read something on the computer. And I said, yeah, sure. And then I realized she didn't tell me what it was because she wanted me, every season or so, my wife puts together one of these little snapfish scrapbooks or something like that, shutterfly, shutterfly. Um, and so she was putting one of these things together, and what always happens is you print it, you get it, and then you realize there's a typo like on the title, but it costs too much to reprint. So her big thing is, you know, read through this, and I never want to do it. I, I, I don't know why. It, I'm selfish. That's got to be why. But, but every time I sit down to actually proof it, I just kind of rest in it because I'm looking at snapshots over the past season of my life, over the past season of my family's life. And, and, and it's sort of like, I, I think it can be how we come to God's word. Sometimes we don't want to do the work. Sometimes it's like, oh, I got, you know, I need to be in the word, so I'm going to get in the word. But when we show up in, in honesty and we open it, we kind of just slow down and rest in it. Does that make sense? Is anybody else like that with God's word? And so as I was going through the season of our lives, I stopped worrying about you know, I, I want to go and do this and the punctuation here and there. It was just, wow, what an incredible 
snapshot of God's faithfulness over a season. And and that's what we have in Genesis 32 and 33. We have six pictures, six snapshots of this providential path that God has Jacob on. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at six little snapshots, and that's how we're going to work through this together. Pray with me if you would. God, this is your word. It's yours. And you have been good enough to deliver it to us. And Father, I, I, I come to this task very much um, needy, very much recognizing in due order, I suppose, the absolute need of your strength and your wisdom. I think the very thing that Jacob bumps into here Our wisdom is not enough. Our intellect is not enough. Our strength is not enough. Our scheming is not enough. But Father, you are enough. And and I thank you, God, that this passage in particular is so filled with joy. You, You know, your word tells us that wide is the path and many are there who enter into it that are seeking their their own thing, and they find themselves empty, but, but narrow is the path, and few walk on it who are seeking after you. And so as your word approaches the reality of our world, much of the time is spent in the wide brokenness that we live in. But thank you for each of these narrow slivers of joy that we can walk in. And I pray that that would be true this morning. Make our minds and our hearts able. There is so much truth and joy and love and brokenness in these passages that, Father, if you do not give us a new heart, if you do not give us a new mind, Father, the sinful heart and the broken mind that we have will crack and it will fissure under the pressure. It cannot contain all of the glory that is in your word. So instead, Father, I I pray that you would break away hard hearts this morning. That minds that have turned from you or are disinterested in you, Father, that life would be breathed into them this morning. Pray for all of us, regardless of our path, whether we've responded to the gospel, whether we have not, whether we've been walking faithfully with you for years, or whether this is the first time we've walked in a church in ages to hear your word. May it be fresh and new and living and active and sharp in our hearts this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Genesis chapter 32. We will start picture number one. Picture number one, a man under providence. Genesis chapter 32, verse one. Jacob went on his way. And he was glad to go on his way because, as you know, he's leaving Laban behind. He's leaving behind 20 years of struggling and scheming and deceiving and being deceived. And now his back is on that. However, his face is toward a broken relationship. A brother who he would very much like to have a restored relationship with. They grew up together. Same mom, same dad, living in the same tents. They wrestled, they played, but as they grew up, they began to separate. 
You can see this in your kids. A lot of times somebody says, hey, what is Ames going to be like? And that's my youngest. And I'm like, I don't know. His, you know, his personality is still very much in development. And so when kids are young, you, you, they kind of just are. They just are around each other. But as they grow up, you see their personalities begin to develop. And if you look back in Genesis, we find that Esau was a man who loved the wilderness. He was hairy and rugged, a brute of a man who loved hunting and wild game. And and Jacob grew up, and and the Bible just tells us that he enjoyed dwelling around the tents. I don't think Jacob was a pushover. I I don't, they were twins, not identical, but I, I I always, maybe it's because this is how the Bible shows pictures of Jacob as a kid. I always think of him as just like really thin, like maybe because I think of Esau so big. I think Jacob would just snap in half if Esau ever was like, like that would be it for Jacob. But, but then we read later on in Genesis that Jacob walks up to this well and there's a stone over it that usually takes three or four guys and he like lifts it. And so I get this picture of Jacob and in a minute he's going to wrestle with God. So I think this is a good picture for you to take. He doesn't have pretty boy muscles. He's got farmer muscles. If you know what I mean. He, Esau is kind of like, and you're like, oh. Jacob I don't think would do that, but he had farmer muscles. He, he worked with sheep. Just he, he had muscles that were made to do work. And, and, and these boys begin to grow apart. And for 20 years, Jacob has known that it was Esau's plan to kill him. Next opportunity. I'm going I'm to get rid of my brother who deceived me. And so here we take snapshot number one, a man under providence. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. If you're a note taker, I would just jot this down. It's very interesting that when Jacob sees this, his perception of what God is displaying through this showing of angels is not like Bethel. At Bethel, he has a vision of angels and he says, this is the house of of God, but now as he is journeying, he looks and he says, This is God's camp. It's more of a tent. This is a mobile army, which is a beautiful display of God's providence. Jacob didn't deserve it. You and I don't deserve it. He'd schemed, he'd deceived, he'd done his own plan, just like many of us do before we come to the reality of Christ on the cross. We'd come up with our own plan, how life's going to look, and this, that, and the other. But now Jacob has his back to all this scheming, and his face is towards Esau. He's expecting probably the worst, and he has to walk this path to get there. And what a beautiful thing that God says, you did not earn this, you haven't even gotten on your knees yet to pray, but I preemptively am coming before you showing you that I've got your back. You're not going to go from the gap of Laban, difficult, Esau, difficult, without my providential purpose and hand in your life. These angels are with you. They are following you. Even in this journey will I be ministering to you. Our lives, many times when we look at the pictures, we see the high and we see the low, but sometimes we neglect to prayerfully say, God, thank you for your faithfulness as I traveled from one to the other. But we see a man under providence, a God who says, I will not leave you though you deserve it. 
I will instead overcome you. Indeed, I will subdue you because my grace is upon you. Snapshot number two, Genesis chapter 32, verse three, a man scheming. Now, if you're anything like Jacob or myself or anybody else who has ever created because we have a sin nature, then you realize that just because we have a God encounter does not mean that we leave behind all of our sinful, broken ways. And so Jacob now is going to begin scheming. Picture number two, a man scheming. And Jacob sent messengers before him. We know not how many, but he sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Now, here's what I want you to do. Here's what you're going to say to Esau. Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord. Now notice the change of posture. We're starting to see humility. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us if this is legit humility or if it's scheming. And the reality is, that's how it is in our lives many times. We don't know where Jacob is right now. The Bible doesn't make it clear. Is Jacob really trusting in the promises of God? Or is he just back to his regular scheming? It seems like scheming. And so he goes on, I've got all these things. I just want to find favor in your eyes. Esau, verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid. And distressed. I don't like these messengers. And I'll tell you why. There are a lot of things I don't understand in Scripture. A lot of things that God, I'm not that bright, but then there are just a lot of things that God withholds for a while. These messengers make zero sense to me. They either find Esau and he's like, Jacob, that's so great, I can't wait to meet him. Why are you talking about the 400 men? Why are you freaking Jacob out? If that's the case, or if Esau's like, oh, Jacob, good, and he's like sharpening a blade, you'd think there'd be like an exclamation point, not, um, we, we came to your brother Esau, he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. It's kind of like they leave it up to Jacob to decide what that means. Either it's good news or it's bad news, but I think in this we may have a really neat, and I don't want to read too far into scripture, but I do think we have something here. I think it's interesting because these servants have been around deception so long. I wonder if they would even trust a welcome greeting from Esau. These servants have seen their master deceive. They've seen it with Laban deceive. And when they walk up on Esau, they've got to know the story. I mean, their lives are on the line here. If they see Esau and he's like, hey, brother, so glad to meet you. Can't wait to see Jacob. You know they got to be be going back saying, man, this family deceives, yo. Something's going down. Tell him about the 400. Leave it at that. Let him plan it out, okay? Our dude's a chess master, okay? Let him think it through. He'll come up with something. I don't get it. I, I, I really don't. I think it could also be that Esau was very upset with his brother. That's why they mention it. And God has yet to smack Esau in the heart, which maybe he does as jo Jacob prays in a moment. 
But Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed, and rightly he should be. 20 years have passed, but not only that, he remembers Papa's story. We all like listening to our grandfather tell stories, and certainly one of the stories that Abraham would probably have wanted to tell was not the Abraham-Isaac story, though I'm sure it came up. It's probably not the top of the list. If I were Abraham, one of my favorite stories to tell would be the time when me and 318 men went out against four kings and won. That's the war story you tell. This we have in Genesis, I think, Genesis chapter 14. So Jacob knows if if 318 men can take out four kings, I got 400 men plus Esau, who counts like 20, Coming against me, and I've got me and oxen and donkeys and milking camels. That's good. That's great. I'll just send all the milking camels after him. Jacob finds himself in a place where he's got nothing that can come against him. His schemes begin to play out. So, he prays. And Jacob said... He he separates the camps into two. And in verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. Almost reminding God, don't forget what you said now. I'm going. Don't forget what you promised. I am not worthy. This is something we have not here cross the lips of Jacob. This is something that must cross each of our lips on a path of providence and repentance to God. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown me, your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Last time I was standing here and this water went by, there was one thing in my hand. All I owned was a stick. That's it. And now you have made me, made me into a great family. So great that it is separated into two camps. We know how great, if you remember all that he took from Laban. Please, Deliver me, verse 11, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring against the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is a picture of a real struggle for someone who is seeking to have faith in God. You can fill it in with whatever picture hits in your own life. Whatever you would flip to in the Shutterfly album of your soul. But there's a time when you're like, I know God's promised this, but this is what I'm seeing. And you're wrestling. What am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the promises of God, but it's hard to see them? It's hard to believe them. It's hard for me to put my all into them. 
I better separate it into two camps because if this fails, at least something will be left. I can't put all my eggs in one basket, but God, don't forget you said this. Do you see the struggle? Do you see this wrestling? Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to believe? What am I going to do? And the schemer continues to scheme and he sends a kingly gift of 550 animals. This is a lot of animals. It's a lot of animals. He separates them into droves. I'm not going to read each verse here. But he stays there that night in verse 13. And from what he had, he took a present for his brother Esau. It's goats and bulls and donkeys and calves and all of these things. What's interesting is not just the size of the gift. This is what a local ruler would give to a king. So you can see the disposition he's trying And and he said it, I want to, in order that I may find favor in your sight. He's wanting Esau to just chill. I want to make it up for you. I I deserve for you to avenge yourself on me. I stole your blessing, but hey, how about 550 animals? That's got to be pretty good, right? And here's what I'll do. I'll even separate them. I'll separate them into a couple of groups. I'll send a servant with this group and they'll come and they'll get to Esau and they'll say, this is a gift from your servant Jacob to his Lord Esau. And more than that, Jacob's behind me. So Esau has got to be processing this gift and then looking up, is that Jacob? Is he coming yet? And then this other drove of animals comes over and over again. He's buttering up Esau. That's what he's doing. And you do it too. I'm not going to make a claim on this because I don't always think it's a bad thing. Sometimes, all right, married illustration, PG-13. Sometimes you clean the husbands, you clean the kitchen because you want to bless your wife. Sometimes you clean the kitchen because you want to be blessed. By your wife. Now, you could argue with me, is any of those really that bad? I was talking to Karen Ann about this, and she was like, don't say it's bad. I love it when you clean the kitchen. Like, don't convince people this is poor marital wisdom. I, I, I would just submit to you this. If the only reason you ever clean the kitchen is to be blessed. There's probably some jacked upness in your heart. Okay, so I'm not going to make the claim that uh, that this maybe buttering up, scheming, plotting. Maybe it's just wise planning and wisdom. Sometimes it's hard to just get it and and pin it right down. I I, I would just submit to you that if all of your actions are for the buttering up of your spouse or your kids, or your boss, or your friends, or your whatever relationship it is, there's probably some brokenness there. There ought to be days where we're just like, hey, can't wait to bless her. Hey, can't wait to love them. Hey, can't wait to show them the grace of God. So, so you just kind of, you take that, and we'll let the Holy Spirit apply it to your heart in the way that it ought to. But we still see this, this, this buttering up a man scheming picture number three. A man emptied, and now we come into what is, I think, my favorite section of Scripture. This picture of a man who is empty. Verse 21. So the present passed on ahead of him, with him behind, 
And he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. He takes his family and he crosses the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them with him remaining behind across the stream and everything else that he had. It's important now to give you a a small geography lesson. Jacob is coming from the north to Esau at the south. Running us along him is the Jordan River. Cutting between is the Jabbok. Jacob, Esau, he's moving towards Esau along the Jordan River with the Jabbok between him. He stops, sends his family, sends his stuff, sends everything ahead, and he remains. And there is wrapped up in this geography a beautiful lesson. You see, We read earlier that Jacob said, last time I crossed this river, all I had was a stick. But you have done great things, God. And so in a sense, we have Jacob standing next to this river of God's grace and his faithfulness. On one hand, I've got this, but then before him is a brother whose future remains very uncertain as to how he is going to treat Jacob. He is fearful. He is distressed. There are 400 men. I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about the moms. I'm worried about the kids. I've got faithfulness by God on one hand, and I've got a fearful relationship that I'm walking toward on the other. I think that's many times how God ordains our lives to go, where there's faithfulness beside and fear ahead. But we find here a man emptied. He has no more resources. He only has grace. And a man who has been filling his hands with something, whether it be the ankle of a brother that he sought to usurp, the blessing of a blinded father, the grasping at the building of a family from a father-in-law, an uncle who is deceptive, This is perhaps the first time Jacob has stood empty-handed. And I submit to you that he had never had more than in this moment. It's this beautiful quote by St. Augustine. We're going to pop it up and I'm going to read it to you. I just realized I didn't write down my notes. I'm going to read it from the screen to you. St. Augustine tells us this. When we are emptied of ourselves and all our resources are finished, then the battle is won and the Lord has gained his victory in our lives. When you have nothing left to grab, all you do is sit alone and in need. You are never then in that moment more useful to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loves to use the foolish to confound the wise, who loves to use the weak to confound the strong. God loves us empty, in need, and alone. And that's where Jacob is, perhaps for the first time in his life. And we move to our next picture, a man wrestling. Sometimes in our lives, things have to go bad enough for us to to determine to fix them. Do you know what I'm saying? You walk by the same squeaky door, but it's not until that one day that you just go, ah! that you actually fix it. You know, this morning I was taking a shower and the door to our bathroom does not 
fully closed. The latch just won't quite hit right. And so I can't lock the door to the bathroom. And if you know anything about hawk life, there are almost always naked children running somewhere. And I'm trying, like, I've gone over my notes again this morning. I'm, I'm trying to just take, like, this peaceful, warm shower where I'm praying and I'm going over my thoughts to God, but I can't because there's, there's this parade of loud nakedness in my home. And, and, and it's like, I'll start into prayer and then I'm like, Ames, no, out, go. And he just stands there naked knowing dad, he's not getting out. He's not going to drip all over the floor. He just stands there looking at me like... Because if I stop looking at him, if I don't give him that, he'll just like relent. And he'll be like, I really just want to stand here and watch you take a shower. How creepy is that? (laughs) I love my kids. They've got no social cues. (laughs) I hope that's all of your kids and I'm just not doing a horrible job raising them. But then as soon as Ames gets out, out of the laundry pops Thad. (laughs) Hey, Dad. Hey, buddy. Just trying to take a shower. Do you mind leaving? And he's like, I'm wearing underwear. And I'm like, that's good, buddy. Daddy really wants to take a shower. Closed four or five, five times I said, close the door this morning. And I was like, I'm fixing that. Before I go to youth tonight, I am fixing that thing. And, and I feel like that, it, things just sometimes have to get so bad or so frustrating that we're like, you know what? I'm actually going to put energy towards fixing it. Well, Jacob finally has things Go beyond his ability to scheme or to wrestle. Picture number four, a man wrestling. If you remember his prayer to God, he said, Please save me from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. I don't know that God giggles. I don't. We're created in the image of God, and I giggle. I think I saw Chelsea giggle when Paul made a mistake this morning. Yes? Yes? Yes. I just figured Paul was emphasizing the same line again. No. But when the prayer comes across the ear of God, and you hear, would you deliver me from the hand of Esau, for I fear him? I could see God getting angry, but I could also see him going, huh. You're scared of Esau. You're scared of Esau. I get it. He's a brute. He's a strong dude. Why don't you fear me, right? Like, isn't my hand so much bigger? You, you talk about this providence that you've seen. Shouldn't you be fearing God, not man? Isn't that an easier thing to understand and to do? And I just think it's incredible because God is about to, in the form of a man, put his hands on Jacob. And Jacob's prayer was, I'm scared of the hand of Esau. And God's like, that's not the hand you need to be scared of. This is the hand you need to be scared of. My hand. And he goes on. We, we've seen, amen? <laughs> Yay, wrestling. WWE at church. We see this similar in Abraham's life, though it's a little different. God shows up. The form of a man with Abraham. But this, I, this seems more intimate to me. 
And, and as I begin to read it, if I could just encourage all of us to read it anew. Story of God wrestling with Jacob, we've heard. But God, in the form of a man, came and touched Jacob. He wrestled him. He spent a significant period of time. And it wasn't just, let's have a conversation. There was an intimate colliding of beings here. It reminds me of when I was young in my faith. And I was in a, you know, kind of we go through these stages of doubts. And it was one of those where I was like, God, I just need to know that you're there. Can you make a light blink? Could you? Yeah, everybody laughs a little because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I never prayed, God, could you show up in the form of a man and just wrestle me to the ground? Put your knee in my back so I remember it, you know, real good. Like, I never went so far as to what God is about to give Jacob in an encounter. Verse 24. Jacob is alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This appears in Scripture as quickly as it must have appeared in reality. I don't think it's a situation where Jacob's sitting there alone. He's probably thinking, I'm going to meet Esau tomorrow. I've got to get some sleep. I've got to be clear-minded so I can make good decisions so that my scheming and my chess mastering is in full swing potential. I've got to get some rest. I've got to have clarity, but there will be no rest tonight. I've got to be physically prepared. What if things go bad and I end up protecting? He will have no physical strength left. And in this moment, God appears in the form of a man. Now, Jacob doesn't realize initially that it's God. But in due course, he will. It wrestle until the breaking of day. I almost wonder if I've as the man was coming, if Jacob wondered, is that Esau? Is he coming in the darkness of night when I'm separated from my family to undo me? I wonder if one of the thoughts that went through his head is, will my wife and my children find my body in the morning? I wonder. I've got nothing for him to take. It's already been sent ahead. This man is not coming to steal from me. He is coming for me. And that is the path of providence for all of us who respond to the gospel. God comes for us and subdues even our will. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was wrenched. It was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And the man said, let me go for the day has broken. You see, just as Christ came in the form of a man, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he had a certain stamina, and he got tired, and he got hungry, and he sweat, and he bled. This man, don't mistake it, when he and Jacob meet, they are an even match. I am not saying that Jacob is more powerful than God, but I am saying the form that God has come in in this man, they are evenly matched. It would have been a good one to watch. Because they went at it. I didn't wrestle. I remember talking to Paul. I wrestled with my boys. I wrestled a little bit. Never did it you know, like on a, a high school level or anything like that. But wrestling is one of the most exhausting things you can do. If you go at it 
hard for three or four minutes, you're smoked. And this goes on until daybreak. And it's an even match. It, I think it would almost be demeaning, and this is not the point of what God's doing here. If the man comes and Jacob grabs him, and the man's like, oh, oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. Oh, no, not a full Nelson. Oh, don't you do that. Oh. It's like if I'm wrestling with my boys, they don't want to be able to beat up their dad. They just want to cheap shot him once in a while. They don't want to undo me. They just want me to hurt for a moment. And, 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 and when these two men, when Jacob and this man collide, there's an equality of strength there until God's time has arrived. God will let you struggle with him. In fact, I think all of us have to. I think that's one of the things we must take from this picture. All of us must struggle. I think this is important for those of you who have children. Let them struggle with God. We handicap our children when the gospel that we give them is easy. Because the walking out of it will not be. They need, I, I'm not saying you watch your kid in a riptide get pulled away. You're a parent. You need to be involved. But I am saying, let their head go underwater every now and then. Let them come up gasping for gospel truth and air. The teenagers that myself and the leader spend time with there's a difference in a kid who has, been, who has bought into following Jesus is easy. They're handicapped. Something eventually happens in life and they don't know what to do. Mom, Dad, aren't you going to take care of this too? But you can't because they're gone. Or they're home and you wish they were. And you're finally like, that's it. The door squeaked one too many times. You figure it out on your own. We all have to struggle with God. And Jacob wrestles. And he's been doing this since utero. Grasping at a birthright. Grasping at a blessing. Grasping at a family. But finally, Jacob has met his match. And a hand that has been grasping for something finally comes to rest on something worth holding on to. When we encounter God, when we truly encounter God, we don't want to let go. Jacob is not deceived. He does not think he's going to strong arm this blessing from God. Let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He doesn't think he's going to outstrength God. But he has finally found something worth holding on to. And he refuses to let go. If, if this relationship with God is what it's all been about, if this is what it was supposed to be when you prophesied over me that I was going to be your chosen one and I've been grasping it, doing it myself, and here you are just handing it to me. His hand finally rests on something and he refuses to let go. This is not a pride issue. This is not an arrogance issue. This is a heart issue. But God waited until he was alone and in need and he had no plan. And let me just say to those of us who struggle devotionally with God. 
If you never find yourself alone, if you don't show up to this in need, if you are showing up for it to fit into your plan, today I've got this much time for you, God. Don't expect to find something great to hold on to. God's not worried about your schedule. He's worried about his schedule. We were at CrossCon on Friday night. I'm starting to feel like we're doing a lot of things on Friday night as a church. Kind of up in the ante for you guys. Sorry about that. I think, I think you have a breather coming. You still have to show up next Friday. Um, or no, Saturday. <laughs> I should know. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. CrossCon, thank you. I think it was the beady. And he was talking to young adults and, and he was basically giving them wisdom and being able to be sent by God. Some decisions you can make. And one of the things that he said that so blessed me, I think it was to be, it may have been somebody else. He talked about the gift of singleness. And I think that is one snapshot in the life of a believer that is so hard to hold on to and have faith in. But God's word tells us that it is a gift. To not have to worry about the naked kid running in while you're taking a shower. To not have to worry about the next thing that you've got to get to. Or are you going to clean the kitchen or are you not going to clean the kitchen? There is a beauty in the freedom that God gives us in singleness. And I would encourage you to grab it. We see a man praying. Verse 27. And now he begins to talk. And he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob responds, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. No one strong arms blessing from God. But finally, 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 after over 20 years, it's clicked. And this renaming of Jacob, this renaming him Israel, is the climax of the story. This is where it all changes, and it's right for him to be renamed, because from this point forward, he is a new man. Up to this point, it was the God of my father. Isaac. It was the God of my father Abraham. But now in intimacy and relationship and brokenness and emptiness with nothing left and with nothing in my hands, God encountered me. He's not just Abraham's God. He's not just Isaac's God. He's my God. That. I I, I think that was the moment that God most looked forward to in the life of this patriarch. This. This renaming. And the events change him. Jacob asks in verse 29 for his name. And he said, why do you ask? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. And now we look at our last picture, our final snapshot, a man limping. The sun rose, verse 31, upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because 
of his hip. And this limp would not leave him. And the people of Israel, meaning Israel, strives with God. And what an apt name for a nation that would continue to strive with God. Would remember this and it would become a custom. This brokenness that he walks in. But we notice something. Verse 1 of chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But here we don't see Jacob. He doesn't go to the back of this great caravan so he can see what happens. Here we see Israel walk to the front of the line. A man with his family behind him, his God before him, limping in glory towards his brother. Verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. And you can see it. If you look at it from Esau's vantage point, you see a crowd coming toward you. You see him coming, but in front is this odd figure who keeps moving in an abnormal way and then bowing down to the ground. And I can't help but wonder if each time he bowed after this recent wrestling match, if he had to his way back up on the sore hip. And he goes and he bows and this is the humility Of seeking a restored relationship. Are you right with the people in your life? In a moment we're going to take communion together. And as we do one of the things that we must ask ourselves is. Am I right with God? Notice that this is what happens first. But then after that the question is. Are you right with others? What is your relationship with your spouse? With your brothers and your sisters in Christ, with your co-workers, with your children, with those afar, with those estranged. What is your relationship with them? Because Jacob will not leave this one out even if it costs him his life. Though he no longer fears that it will. He comes limping to his brother. No energy of our own. No scheme of our own. No strength of our own. Just limping toward glory And this is a picture we all love. If you're a kid, it's the story of Turbo the Snail. Right? He gets in the race, gets to the very end, shell cracks. Oh, now he's lost his superpower. I know only 10% of you know what I'm talking about. I'll get to you. But he creeps and creeps across the line. Okay, we'll go with a little different population here. Jamaican bobsled team. Cool runnings. You don't even care that they lost. Because they limped that rugged, beaten bobsled across the line. And you're like, yeah! I'll make it even easier for some. We still play this clip whenever Summer Olympics hit. We have done nothing good in gymnastics since this point, apparently. Carrie Strug, 
1996 Summer Olympics, busted ankle, has to stick the landing or we don't get the gold. If you saw it, you remember it. If you, and you see that snapshot and you're like, ha, ha, ha. She goes, she jumps. I don't know what the thing's called, a horse. Vaults. Sticks it with her little broken leg lifted up, carried to the podium by her coach. There's a reason we love this story. God has put it into the heart of man to love this story. That's why the gospel includes a story of a man limping up a hill, beaten and bruised with a cross on his back, empty-handed as Jacob. The only thing that would fill his hands would be the nails that we deserved. There's a reason we love those stories. They end in joy, broken but joy, as our Savior rises from the grave and sits at the right hand of God and says to all of us, follow me in your brokenness. Follow me with your limping. Leave your strength at the door. Leave your things to the side. Come to me empty. Come to me alone and limp into grace. That is the final picture that we have. Philippians 2 Verses 5 and 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, I love this, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you see it? Do you see Jacob? It's not something to grasp. Don't reach. Don't grasp. Be empty handed. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Bowing far more than seven times. But bowing his head in death. Being born. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of of men. And here our story concludes in joy. And I submit to you that if you desire for your life to end in joy, you must submit to limping. You've got to. If you want to look back on the snapfish, whatever, shutterfly folder of your life, when you stand before God, and you look at the picture of your life, if you want to have joy in your heart then, then you must have limping in your life now. You must. No one walks up to God and says, give me, give me, give me. That's who Jacob was, but it's not who Israel is. And so we have this beautiful meeting, verse 4. 
But Esau ran to meet him. He embraced him. He fell on his neck. He kissed him and they wept. And these brothers who grew together and loved one another and then eventually grew apart are finally reunited. I don't know when Esau set out with those 400 if he intended to do harm and God just grabbed his heart. Or if the whole time he's just been longing to embrace a brother he's missed for 20 years. I don't know, but I do know that this verse is what Christ looks to when he tells us the story of the prodigal son. This is it. The father looks up from a long way off. He sees him and he runs to meet him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and he kisses him and they weep. This is the story. And I wonder if that's not why in the story of the prodigal son, Jesus pushes in so hard on that hateful brother who sees his redeemed brother come home. And he's like, Father, haven't I been here? Haven't I been doing this? And Jesus looks and he says, if godless Esau can receive him back, how much more ought we to receive back those who have wronged us? I can't help but think that in this room there are numerous relationships that have been broken for years, maybe for 20. Sometimes there's nothing we can do about it. Now, let me change that. You can pray, but sometimes there is something that you can do. And you just need to humbly need to limp and walk. And so the story blows up with joy. Esau lifts up his eyes in verse 5. He sees all of the family, those who God has graciously given him. And Joseph offers, Jacob offers all these things to find favor in Esau's sight. Verse 9, but Esau said, I've got enough. Keep what you have. Jacob said, no, please. If I found a favor in your sight, then accept my present. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Why? Esau wasn't that good looking. In fact, we don't know that he actually saw this guy's face because it was dark. Many people think that's why God said, hey, I've got to go. Day's breaking. You can't handle all this glory. I've got to go. But we know that one thing is similar. Esau is extending to him unmerited favor and God has extended unmerited favor. This was cultural. You offer a gift and it must be refused. Esau had to refuse it. But then he continued to offer and Esau relents and he takes the payment. But what is interesting is Esau breaks custom here. He doesn't give Jacob a token back. He leaves it. And I think it's beautiful because what it's saying is the payment has been made. You owed, but the payment has been made. This is our story in Christ. The payment has been made due to unmerited favor. And it's important that it stand paid. Esau said in verse 12, let us journey on our way. I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are frail and nursing. He, I, I, I don't know if he's beginning to fall into his own ways or if he's just being wise and is dealing with Esau. He doesn't know if he can fully trust him. I, I don't really know with Jacob. I think a lot of times we just don't. But I do know this, verse 15. Esau offers to leave some of the people who are with him. With him. And Jacob, who would typically have so readily taken more, who would have typically so readily taken an escort, says this. It should be the truth of our lives. What need is there? What need, verse 15, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. My faith has become life fact. My hope 
is not in man. So Esau returned on. If you could just throw up those six, I would encourage you that this is the path for all of us who walk into providence with God. Before you were ever born, there was an understanding that God's grace resided upon his children, his elect. Though we scheme and we come up with our own plans until finally we are emptied of something and we begin to wrestle, am I going to trust the faithfulness of God or am I going to trust the fear of this world? And we pray and we seek him and God takes us and he breaks us in our strength and he sends us limping on into this world. It's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for all of us. And I think it's the beautiful joy that we find in this picture of the story of Jacob. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we prepare to receive communion, as we prepare to respond, that we would know first off that our relationship is right with you. None of our scheming or our plotting or our planning will come to anything but empty hands and broken hearts and yielded spirits are of great value in the kingdom of God. And I pray over each of us, not just for our relationship with you, though that is, of course, the most important. I pray, Father, for our relationships, the people that we're estranged from, the people that we long to be reunited with. God, would you do your redeeming work? Would you restore the broken, and the part that we need to play in that, would we have boldness and courage to hold on to the promises of God as we limp humbly into the future? Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.